study some other aspects of the issue of Teshuvah itself. Of course, as we know, Teshuvah is one of the critical variables in the spiritual religious life of, the, of a Jewish person, as is, for example, something like, called Tefillah. Tefillah, prayer, Teshuvah, repentance, return, introspection. These are two critically important concepts in the spiritual life of a Jewish person. And there are many aspects, many ideas, many angles that one has to think about when one thinks about the issue of Teshuvah itself. Quite properly, what should happen over here is that one should open up the Rambam, who provides us with an overall summary of what Teshuvah is all about. And he is a great repository for seeing how the rabbinic position, what the rabbinic position on Teshuvah was all about. Ram goes back a thousand years to the times of the Gemara itself, and there he collects, edits, adapts, adopts all of the aspects of the Shuvah itself. So a very clear systematic formulation of the Rambam is right in front of us. And on Tuesday night's class, we're going to systematically study the issue of the Shuvah itself from the Rambam's point of view. However, today I want to raise almost what you might call a backdoor issue and a kind of indirect approach to the Shuvah itself and utilizing a Maimonidean source, the Rambam source, as well as a contemporary Rabbi Salavajic source to see a different aspect as to what the Shuvah is all about. Now, what we're going to get out to you over here is what the Rambam says sorry, regarding a crisis. My essential question is, what implications are there to a crisis that takes place either on the individual or on the collective basis. What that really means over here is that let's say a person suffers, God forbid, some kind of loss, whatever the case may be. What is that talking about? And what about if the nation of Israel, such as the situation in Israel today, they are under an extraordinary degree of pressure, a literally crisis, to the point where people are breaking and they can't deal with this any longer. It means that you can never walk safely in the streets. You just don't know what to do, where to go, how to go about this. It's an issue of crisis. How should one perceive this through Judaic eyes. And here we're going to find my, the Ramam's answer, Salatik's answer, and yet we're going to come to next week a perspective, after going through these first two answers, that at a certain point in time, the Maimonidean and the Rabbi Salavajikian answer have been pushed to a back burner and people will be less certain about explaining catastrophe the way the Ramam does, the way the Rabbi Salvation does. In a certain period of time, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, they become less certain about how to explain it. And then, ironically enough, there's a resurgence nowadays also of attempts at interpreting catastrophe. What happens when one expresses, when one finds catastrophe? What do you do, individually and collectively? And we can raise the question as we go along, whether there's a distinction between the individual and the collective. You may want to apply something from the individual to the collective or the opposite, what's true for the collective is not true for the individual or true for the individual. Or you may not want to make that transition from individual to collective, collective to individual. You may or may not want to talk about that way. The tzibur, in the history of Jewish thought, the tzibur, the kahal, the group of Jewish people, has a standing that may be beyond the individual, which means, in this particular case, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Of course, you all learned in geometry that the whole is equal to some of its parts. has to be. However, over here, when we think philosophically and metaphysically of the Jewish group, the Tzibur, the Kahal, 
the Aida on Israel, that collective is really not simply a question of an aggregate of individual people, rather represents something much more significant, something you might want to say eternal. No individual is eternal, but the aggregate of, individu- of individual Jews ultimately may be eternal. But Salvechik sort of defines this issue in what he calls Knesset Israel. Knesset Israel means the body politic of the Jewish people itself. And he makes often the point that this transcends any one generation. We are not simply only living in the 19th, uh, in 20th century, 21st century, and have no connecting link to anything that goes before that. To the contrary, what goes on over here is that we are chaining ourselves back to links of chain to the beginning of the Jewish people, and we go far into the future. So we will transcend ourselves, and we should not simply see ourselves as individuals, isolated, discrete units. Yes, that's true, we are. And we have an obligation and a job and a task and a mission to do. But from Marisolvetsch's point of view, this individual is really harking back to a three or four thousand year old history and will extend himself into the distant future of eternity. Because if we're co-eternal with the Kadosh Baruch Hu, with the Almighty Himself, then we in fact go beyond our individual, concrete, discrete, individualized lives. We go beyond that. And one has to see oneself in that greater perspective as well as seeing oneself in the more limited perspective. So the Sibur, the Kahal Israel, is more. It's not simply ten people saying Amen to Kaddish. It's all of Knesset Israel saying Amen to that Kaddish. That ten represents the all. In the same way, when he discusses this issue, another of his essays, talks about Moshe Rabbeinu Ishaveh is equal to the Shem Zekinim, let's say, in one particular Tamil context. Moshe Rabbeinu is on one side and everyone else on the other side. He's equal to them. He has the knowledge, he has the spiritual power, the spiritual energy of being equal to all of those other Zekinim, or Am Yisrael. Moshe had a strength, a spiritual strength, beyond the immediate. So, so to Sibur Yisrael, the ten people praying, it's not ten. The ten saying Amen is equal to a hundred saying Amen, a thousand saying Amen, hundred saying to all Jews. That ten is a microcosm of the macrocosm called the Jewish people. So the Sibur, the Ida, the Kahal is writ large. And the individual lives life against the backdrop of that entire panorama of Jewish history. So if you were to look at it from this perspective, this in back of you is the whole map of Jewish history. And at certain points, little points light up, light up, light up, light up. I'm over there, you're over there, he's over there, you're over there. But we're still living against the backdrop, the backdrop of the Jewish people, which represents an entirety, a whole, beyond the sum of the individuals. So it's, it's an interesting metaphysical concept that Rabbi Salachik describes and defines. But <coughs> here we may be saying that what takes place on the communal level may or may not affect the individual. In other words, tzibur may be a broader issue, and there may be halachot that are related to the tzibur, to the collective unit, that are not applicable to the individual, and vice versa. So we're not sure necessarily what we're going to say today, or in the Rambam of Salvation, whether or not we want to apply the statements of the Rambam to the individual, or not. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Tzibur may perhaps be viewed differently than simply an aggregate of individuals. So we may make a statement about the Tzibur, and then we'll discuss, should this be applicable to the individual or not? Maybe Ramam says yes, maybe he says no, maybe he says yes, maybe he says no. That we'll see as we go along. 
My basic issue over here, therefore, is how does one respond to crisis? And of course, that's going to be a backdoor into the discussion of Tishavah itself. So we're pretty clear about that, right? So we look at now, you have in front of you, your right-hand page is not relevant to us whatsoever. In case you were wondering what this right-hand page is, what do you think it is? It's the moon, the moon. And how we define various portions of the moon in order to decree the new moon. That's not relevant to us at all. Right. That's just from the last chapter, the last page over here. Right. So let me do it to you, so don't even look at it, don't even worry about it. Okay. What we're talking about over here now is a Chot Ta'anit, right? Chot Ta'anit. And this is an interesting issue where the Rambam says there are certain laws that have to do with fasts. Right? Now, if I were to ask you, where do you get this from? Where does it come from? How do we understand this? Yeah, there's a question, but we'll wait. Okay, so now we look at Chol Ta'anit, Ta'aniyot. In other words, it's interesting that there are certain fast days. But, the fast days thinking about over here is right different than the fact that you're ordinarily used to. You know only of one fast biblically, which is Yom Kippur. Now, of course, the Rambam... Exactly. The Rambam is going to make the point that I have a separate section for the halachot of Yom Kippur, which is a fast day. Now, that's fascinating. If you look, you don't have it in your books, but... Right, it's called Shuitat Asura. It's the Rambam calls it, which is very different than... We're talking about right now. There is Rambam put in two distinct places in Chota Aniyot and Shivitat Asur. Early on, he talked about Shivitat Asur way before. Prior to even Yom Tov, it's not even in this volume. This is volume two. In volume one, he talks about the issue of Kippur. But now he's decided to give us a completely different set of halachot that have to do with fast because the fast on Yom Kippur is very different he's going to say than the fast that we're going to decree because we decide to decree it in other words we want to elaborate we want to expand on the notion itself as to how a Jew responds to something that happens and the Ram is going to say that look on the top line when you talk about fast days there's one specific mitzvah he and that is <clears throat> to scream out in front of Hashem at any time there's a crisis that comes to a tzibur any time that there's a crisis that we feel is going to attack a tzibur then we have to cry out it's very interesting how the Rambam formulates that for example I'll give you an example Yes, there is a crisis. Right, what should we do about it? Agreed. Has a, oh no, well, Absolutely. One single. It's a crisis. So what should we do about this? I don't know. So the Rambam is going to try to, the Rambam is going to, try to formulate what this actually means. What we're, okay. So the Rambam is telling you exactly that point. Harvey is saying okay, that we have a crisis in Israel. Now what should we do about it? Right. Now, let's look at other different historical situations. Let's say you hear that in 1492 in March, that there's going to be a decree against Jewish people such that we're going to throw Jewish people out of Spain or Portugal. Or let's say um, Purim, 
This is a decree against the Jewish people. They're all going to be exterminated. It's a terrible situation. So what should we do about that? Is the Rambam's question over here. So he says that the Torah in fact covers that situation that if there is an Aliyah, if there is some kind of Tzara, blood libel, something, that's something that the Ashkenazim have lived with, with to a tremendously intense degree, degree during the Middle Age period. You never knew when there's going to be some person, especially during the time of Pesach, when someone's going to wake up and say, you know something? The Jews are guilty of blood libel or desecrating the host or any of these kinds of situations. Then the community has to respond. How do you respond? You want to respond politically, that's it? Okay, that may be what we should do. Maybe there's something more than that that we should do. So the Rambam is going to describe that issue. So now the Rambam says, Mitzvah Aseh, 613 commandments. One of these commandments is a, it's a positive commandment is ark to scream out and to blast the Hatzotrot by these trumpets that were well known for any kind of crisis that comes upon the collective unity of the Jewish people you have this obligation of crying about it in other words you might say over here they want you to simply passively accept it what am I screaming for? what am I crying for? what am I yelling out for? what am I blowing my shofar out for? You might say, whatever happens, happens. You might have a very fatalistic, passive approach, as some Jews did, and that whatever takes place, accept it. It's God's will, period. Ram does not take that approach that it's God's will, period. But rather, to the contrary, he says you have an obligation of screaming out and blasting the shofarot, these hasotrot, these trumpets, for a specific purpose. I'm blasting my musical instruments, my hasotrot, because I want people to wake up to something. On any Christ takes place, on a Sibur, you have an obligation of crying. It's a Mitzvah Aser. Scream out. You're not to accept this sitting down, lying down, or passively. You must scream out for whatever Christ takes place. It's about to before the Jewish people. Scream out. He has a Pasuk that in the context where the Ramam speaks about the Hatzot he tells us over here that if the enemy comes and attacks you, you have the obligation of screaming and blasting the Hazrat Beach trumpets. Okay? So quote the Pasuk. Right? Clemai. Look at the Ram's definition. 23rd of September. Correct. Okay, that's good. Excellent. Are you going? To, absolutely. Are you going? Yes, he's going. Are you going? Hopefully. To the rally on September 23rd. We're all going to go. We have two buses going to go. We're going to go take buses from the... Uh, take buses from the... Uh, here? From here. We have from here. It's very stressful, but this is 200,000 people. <laughs> it is. We hope to have 200,000 people. What are you paying for those? What are you paying? What are you paying for, what are you paying for the hearts? For the buses? Yes. I don't know. We're, we're, oh, they're free. They're free. How are you paying? The shoe's paying for it. The shoe, I guess. The shoe's paying for it. Three buses. I'll be there. Your membership's paying for it. Put it that way. The JCC has buses going. Aren't they free also? Yes, they're Yeah, they're free. They get to be a massive outpouring of people that one wants to, uh, to do. Uh, does the Rambam break down between the happenings and events? Well, we have to look at that point. It's a very important question, and we'll see what he says over here. Give me one more minute. Okay. The what? JCC, what was it? Right? There's a feed-off. It's for three months. You can have buses at the JCC, it's I know. Free, but rather coming With us. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> a pleasure. My pleasure. You're Ocha'ah. Actually, more. Ocha'ah. So we finish. Ocha'ah. So therefore it will be, he quotes the Pasuk, and from this Pasuk, where it says, you must 
last year Hatsurat, Laram learns the Mitzvah Asr of one of 613 commandments to scream out and Lariya. Now, interesting, of course, the Ramam adds to the Pasuk. Pasuk said to us in front of you, Blast these trumpets because you have a crisis coming. The Ram says, Yes, we must blast the trumpets, but also this off to scream. So he's actually just extrapolating from the statement which says, Blast the trumpets to a much more expanded scream out from the depths of your heart because some kind of crisis took place. Klomar, which means to say, anything that troubles you, anything that's going to be a great crisis, any kind of crisis, you have to respond to it by crying out to God in prayer. But sort it. If there is a famine, a plague, locust, anything that that takes place in that particular context, what must you do over here? The Jewish community, Sibur, has an obligation of screaming out and blasting the Hatsutrot. Good. Now, paragraph 2 is very important to me. Why am I screaming out? Why am I blasting my Hatsutrot? Because he says, he's putting this into a theological context. The theological context of this crisis, you know what I'm saying, is d- divinely directed for a certain kind of a reason. Ram sees the world from the perspective of divinely controlled. So if there's a massive famine, is that for natural reasons, or we call metaphysical or supernatural reasons, Ramam would say, you have an obligation that whatever the reason of this is, that you should call out and ask for God's intervention. You have a right to ask for God's intervention, you have a right to try to rectify the situation by virtue of the prayer that you're going to pray, your screamings, your blasting of the Hasotrot is going to, in fact, change the situation. Otherwise, of course, obviously, I don't believe that your crying out is going to change the situation. So we pray, we scream, we cry. We... So where does this come from? What's the broader context? This is from the issue of Teshuvah. She was Mashtavotara, whenever there is a crisis, these are Kualea, and people scream out about it, we are you, and they blast Hasra, did Everybody will know that the theological reason for this crisis, this famine, this uh, drought that's taking place is because of their deeds. As he quotes from Pasuk, Your sins are going to bring about catastrophe in its wake. And this act that we're doing is going to remove that crisis from them. So the Ramam is putting this in a... Does it really... What is that saying? The Ramam is saying that by virtue of your analysis of the situation to place. Right. Now, what is the Ramam calling it? An incident that just randomly happened or an event? I don't know. That's okay. okay, so Ricky's so, point, and it's right. The Ramam sees this theologically that it's an event. Take note. All the prophets themselves tell us the same thing. All the prophets themselves tell us that if some kind of crisis takes place, it's not a random event. Rather, it's divinely controlled message to us to take note and do something about it. What do you do about it? You pray. You cry. You blow the shofar. You blow the house of And what? people people should hopefully do teshuvah. Or hear from me. Do something. No, you don't shoot. What do you mean? No, he doesn't want you... Political activity would be one issue. Political activity is one issue. Right. But here he's talking about spiritually and theologically. Theologically, he wants you to respond to this 
communal crisis with an issue of teshuvah. In other words, screaming, fasting, blasting the Hasidurot and all the Quran was saying over here is part and parcel of the mitzvah teshuvah. Crisis comes with community. There's a blood libel. Something else happens. Don't exclusively see it in terms of political issues. Rather see it as a theological message that God is trying to communicate to us. In 1840, there was a blood libel against the Jews of Syria. The famous famous Damascus blood libel 1840. So what should Jews do in that particular case? What do you do? Yes, you get involved politically. Yes, you try to steer away any kind of uh, criticism of the Jewish community. What don't you do? But also the would say that that massive crisis has to be addressed on a theological, spiritual level as well. And he says that in that case, declare a fast, number one. Number two, you should call out, you should cry, you should pray together as a community to try to have a person who intervene in that particular crisis. So that is viewed as an event, not as an incident. The fact that there's a blood against Jewish community means there's a theological message contained in that particular situation. You just cry out as you try to change your deeds, your ways. Then all you do is just pray. If you think that you're 100% kosher, as a seaboard. Right. Although it, it'd be strange to see, to hear, to think that any seaboard would feel itself to be so righteous. I mean, one of the no, sad parts of. So, so the, the rabbis then, you know, they're supposed to come down harder? I don't like the uh, term rabbis coming down harder. So that, that becomes a holier than thou type of position, and that might be the Christ that we're having. So because of that, the rabbis are too holy than thou. No, the rabbis, and let's look at the Rambam. The rabbis are part and parcel of the seaboard, and it's their obligation. They may, be, they may be the cause of this particular crisis. It's what they're doing that's inappropriate. Or not doing that's appropriate. So it's not... It's too... When you specify too much, because you're doing X, therefore this is happening, is taking on a burden of almost trying to understand the mind of God and saying, because this, therefore this, that we're going to reject. But to think that Israel now is undergoing a crisis and that the reason is because we're not spiritually straight is an appropriate spiritual insight, the Rambam would say. In other words, let me be a little bit more specific. Let's say um, we had a situation a couple of months ago where a um, whole wedding dance floor collapsed and 20, 30 people were killed and hundreds were injured. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy. The rabbi, who was then was Rabbi Levy at the time, came out with a statement and said that this happened because they had mixed dancing at the wedding. Does he have a right to say that? Does he know that this particular crisis took place because they had mixed dancing at the wedding? Now, I would say no, absolutely not. And that's foolish, it's almost arrogant to say that you know why this happened? You're God, that you know why this took place? On the other hand, does it mean that I should ignore it completely and see it as an incident? No. The Ramah's point is to see this as an event that took place, a spiritual event that has to be responded to, number one. And we respond to it by praying, by calling out, by trying to change our deeds. And not try to make, it's a very subtle point, not try to make the connection that this particular thing happened because it was mixed dancing at that particular wedding. That's inappropriate. That's religious arrogance, I would say. You change these personally, not on a seaboard level. On a seaboard level as well. On a seaboard level as well. It's an appropriate response. Even on a psychological level. Ram here seems to be talking theologically. But we could also look at this psychologically. If God forbid something happens to a community, a terrible tragedy happens to a community, if it's a pogrom or a crusade or a, uh, whatever it may be, a fire in a synagogue, we should respond. Psychologists want you to respond and do something. What should you do? What's the point of doing something? The point of doing something is to, <clears throat> is from a guilt point of view, from, to allay that guilt that you might feel, from the point of view of the deed 
the doing of the deed itself, whatever you're going to do, is going to help you cleanse, cathartic. It's going to help you feel better about it and not immobilize you in saying, God hates me. That's the key variable. You may end up saying that because this tragedy took place, no tragedy we're talking about, it's because of my sins. What if you do this? Because of my sins, and I can no longer pray, I can no longer do anything, the confidence is over. That's a terrible, that in itself would be a terribly wrong response. There's two, two types of responses. You might be the person says, this is an incident, means nothing. Too bad. 50 people get, got killed, too bad. School bus that, that went over a cliff four or five years ago. And this guy named, I think his name was Porat. Porat, I think his name was uh, from, from the case. Because I'm from the Halal Shabbat Kibbutz, that's where they died, in, they died in their bus. So that's horrible. It's evil to even say that if you ask me. But does it mean, now, you may say, well, your response might be that way. Or your response might be, it's an incident, means nothing. Or your response is that I have to do something. So theologically, on the first level saying over here, theologically do something. Cry out. Ask forgiveness. Scream. There's a crisis that's needing to happen. It's going to happen. So we should do something. But I'm also concerned about the other side. Not only the people that say it's only incidental, but also those people that might say that this is divine anger writ so large that we, can, we are immobilized by it. We cannot do anything about it. It's going to rain upon us Storm Amuraz, fire and brimstone, and we can't move, we can't do anything. So Ramam is active in saying that one has neither the right to do nothing, as seen only as an incident, nor as one who's going to do nothing because you see it as divine anger. You see this as two different extremes. Divine anger, I could let the covenant over. Period. Why should I even cry? Why should I even scream? It's too late. God has no longer concern for the Jewish people. Right. That would be one extreme reaction, inappropriate. Saying, pray. Now, pray again, theologically, okay, good, because that affects and impacts upon the situation. But also, pray psychologically, scream out psychologically, because that is an appropriate psychological response that the Raman wants you to have in this situation. He wants you not to be passively accepting that which is taking place, but do something. Pray, scream out, cry out. Now, maybe the is going over here, but I think maybe I'm on tonight and I'm going too far, that from the theological push to do something, and extending from that is the psychological energy that you get to do something, which means to pray in order to achieve a break, you will not become immobilized by the crisis, you end up to political action as well. In other words, if you look at Mordechai Nestor, what would Mordechai Nestor do? There was praying and there was fasting. There was also political activity as well. We have the Jews in that particular time that said, whatever Haman wants to do, let him do. We cannot have any control of this. It's with God's will. Imagine somebody saying, it's God's will, that's going I accept it and finish. They were a massacre. So, you need to be mobilized. But politically mobilized, yes. Psychologically mobilized, yes. And even theologically mobilized. And the theological mobilization may be intrinsically valuable, yes but also may give you that energy to be able to do something psychologically and not become involved, rather active and politically as well. So there are many variables that we're talking about over here. Somewhat clear? Yes, I'm able. Uh, okay. So there's two extremes that you have to worry about. One extreme is doing nothing. Incident takes place, floor, uh, the floor cracks. The other side would be, no, no. God so endless we can do nothing about it two immobilized reactions both are wrong Ramam tells you do something you have an obligation of screaming out or asking God theologically 
and I'm extending it psychologically and even perhaps politically as well. Look at paragraph three, which will take you a step further. What if you do nothing about im loyiz aku? If you don't scream out, you do nothing over here. And you don't blast the shafar of the hazutra. Rather they'll say, the it's an incident. Right? What you said before. It's an incident. Happens. Happens. And this particular crisis happens. The floors of wedding halls do collapse and people die and that's just simply an incident of the Christ. What are you going to do about it? No. That's the end of the story. The Ram says, interesting term. Oh, you got to hold the story over here. What did you Let me see. What's your name? Jacob. Wait. Which yes. Jacob? Jacob, the forefather? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. yes. So you read Psalms, correct? Yes. Now, this is Greek. Yes. Greek people, you mean? Greek. So that's how? Yes. Okay, good. Correct. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Very good. Very good. Excellent. And more. And more. Very good. What's yeah. passing? Good. So what, what Harvey's saying over here is that when Yaakov had this crisis, right. his brothers, Isav, is coming, what did he do? He prayed. He prepared himself for war. He prayed and in terms of war. And he tried to do Master Hesed, kindness, in order to do so. So he, so he was right. actively involved in praying. It's a very good point. In praying, in preparing, politically, militarily. Right. And as well as doing Master Hesed that you hope that is going to bring about good results for the crisis is going to take place. So Yaakov is a good model over here. Interesting, Ram does not mention that over here. Crisis happens, Ram tells you, scream out. But that's exactly what I'm saying. You have to be motivated to do other things besides passively accepting it. Do not passively accept it. You have to do something. So now if you do nothing, and you lawyers like, if you do nothing, you don't scream out, you rather see this event as an incident. Just simply takes place as an incident. Happens. What do you do about it? Many people would tend to see this incident of a social law getting on fire or the floor uh, crack, crack, uh, cracking under them and thereby killing dozens of people as an incident. The Raman would say, Harezo Dirif Akhzariyut. This is cruel. That's a very, very striking formulation. If you see this crisis as simply an incident that took place, Whatever it may be, it's happening. What are you going to do about it? Never. Hazith, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. That's cruel. Now, cruelty is a very funny term. What does cruelty mean? Why is he calling it cruel? Isn't that a... Um, are you struck, stricken by this word that it's cruel? Cruelty is a social, psychological terminology. I'm cruel to a person. Right? I'm cruel to a person. If a crisis takes place, if a crisis takes place, and I don't respond at all, I say, it should happen. That's cruel. Now, interesting question over here would be, let's say, God forbid, in that social situation, where 20 people came, you go to comfort the mourners. And what do you say? Now, you say, it happens. No. So, Sorry. That's a fatal. That's a That would be viewed as cruelty. Because a person, often enough, it's a very, very uh, interesting and difficult point to make, would want to see the suffering, the crisis, the tragedy as part of a broader context that I have some control over. Meaning what? 
if I see the illness, if I see the crisis simply random, then I have nothing to hold on to. It happens, doesn't happen, no, it happens, it's an incident. And if somebody tells you that, there's no rhyme or reason to this, it's sort of uprooting any kind of psychological and spiritual mooring that you have. Because you have no control of it. On the other hand, let's say somebody says to you that, let's say uh, this crisis is about to take place, and you can do something about it. You can't cry out, you can't pray. So I'm going to do something about it. So I'm energized to do something. Even if it doesn't work out at the end. It may not work out at the end. At the end, the crisis may happen. But at least I went down trying. I didn't passively allow the crusade to come and slaughter me and my family. I fought back. I was energized. I was not immobilized. I was mobilized to go ahead and do something because the realm saying well, one must do something. Monday. Oh, your mother passed away on June 9th. It's all of a sudden. What I do? You didn't do anything. We have to make, we have to see that, you're raising a good question. We have to make this, we have to make, uh, distinguish between certain individual and collective communal issues, right. which we'll get to in the Rambam in a few minutes and in uh, Rabbi Salvechik. And yes, in this situation, maybe this is part of the natural order. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. either. But are we going to say that every single person that passes away, passes away because we did something? No. There's a certain natural lifespan. The world works according to certain orderly rules. And there comes a time, a certain point in time, that what we call the way of all flesh. Samuel Butler's book, The Way of All Flesh. This is an appropriate end to life. Now, it depends upon the circumstances. You know, she was, she was an older woman. She was 75 years old. Yes, okay, yes. Something like that. Okay, so she went through the natural lifespan, living life, and we see that life against the backdrop of Jewish history. She's part of this extraordinary chain. She's, she has children that carry on after her. So she's not simply just lived life meaninglessly. She lived a meaningful life. She had a task. She had a mission. She had a job to do. She did it. She produced a family. And then she went to the next level of existence, to the spiritual level. So that, in that kind of... Yeah, now, it's much harder to explain when it's a child. Certainly that's a legitimate, legitimate point. And yet, we should not necessarily think that, the, that we don't have any answers to it, or that there are not, or that there are not any answers to it. Maybe it's that we don't know that. So, although we, we could mourn, and we would do it all we can to save the child, and the crisis happens, then we go to the person, and psychologically, if we tell the person that your child was run over by a car randomly, just happens too bad, tough. That's cruel. If one were to say to that person, this is part of a broader plan of the metaphysically or spiritually in some way that probably would make the person feel better in my famous story your father also passed away he was sick no he's, he's sick he's sick oh he's sitting he's sick there he's, he's just alone your father's at Ephraim yes he's Ephraim and he's sick yes so one of the one of the I understand Bible, what you mean yeah yeah and also very difficult situation Certainly, it's true that we don't have all the answers to all of these questions. Right. I, I accept that point. We don't, your point that it's true. There's two personal, private difficulties and tragedies right. that I don't have answers to. We can't explain every single crisis or tragedy in any which way. We can't. I'm just giving kind of general guidelines. First, communally, and then we'll talk a little bit about the individual in a few moments. Um, now, in that situation, we uh, in a famous story that I mentioned a few times before, relevant to repeat over here, when Rabbi Shwaki made this point a few times, 
when his sister passed away, young girl, 17 years old, lovely girl, Yiddish Shabbat girl, religious girl, the most Sanua girl you can meet, fantastic personality. And she was at camp in a uh, regular schoolboy camp, but she was to come home on Tuesday. On Tuesday, they were going on a special trip. She was to go home that morning. Finished. She ended her, her four weeks there. She's 17 years. She's a counselor. And she said, no, I want to go to this particular trip. She said, I'm going to come with you. She said, okay, you can go home, fine. We don't have any space for you. We don't have no seatbelt for you. She says, okay, I'll, I'll sit without a seatbelt. I'll sit in the bed, no problem. So, of course, as the story goes, the sad part about this is that there was a car accident. The, the bus rolled over and she died in that particular, uh, in that situation. The mother was inconsolable. The husband had passed away a few years earlier. What do you say? Right? Is any reason this? Any, uh, what do you say to this person? But Shwati tells the story that his mother could not stop crying and because all you lose your youngest child, 17-year-old child, and of course, all of us that have children, of course, understand the, the shattering experience of this happens to anybody. Uh, can't even think about it. It's too painful to even think about. Uh, Shwati tells the story that at a certain point in the shiva, he doesn't know who this person was, a woman comes into the house and says, I don't know who you are, but I had a dream last night about this house. He tells the story. I had a dream about this house, and I was, in my dream I was supposed to come here. I want to speak to the mother of the first person. Why she goes to the mother? She says, look, I don't know who you are. This woman says to Roshwaki's mother, I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about what's going on over here. One of those had this dream, and I want to tell you about this dream. And the dream she had, this woman had a dream that a soul comes up to heaven. And the soul comes up to heaven, and it um, knocks on a, on a particular door of the, in the gates of heaven. And the soul is allowed to enter into the beautiful, wonderful pleasures of God. Eden is fantastic, it's extraordinary, it's overwhelming, it's beautiful. All the eye can, can see and enjoy. Fine. Goes to the next room, opens the door, sees fantastic, uh, delicious enjoyment. The soul is feeling, the way this woman saw the dream, the soul is feeling that kind of pure spiritual pleasure. Physical, spiritual, all the command to one. Next room, knocks on the door, not allowed to come in. I want to come into that. You can't come into this. Why cannot I come into this? We can't tell you why. You cannot come into this room. I demand. This soul says, I want to come into this room. The first two not enough. I want to see what's in this room. Right. Difficult situation. There's consternation in the heavens above. And they have a big dean. A big dean is called immediately of the high angelic beings. This woman sees in her dream. And they decide that to call that soul before them and the soul stands before them and says this is the story that particular room that you want to enter that you're not allowed to enter into is a room of kibbutz avayim of respecting parents and in your life this is the word that you didn't do gave specific examples you don't respect your parents and therefore you can't go into that room you're a wonderful person you have room number one you have room number two you have all that's fine it's wonderful no problem no issue that you didn't do. You did something that was a terrible, horrible transgression against your parents. Therefore, you can't have that room. But I want to go into that room, says the soul. You cannot go. But I need to. I want to. I have to. Okay. We'll allow you to resurrect transmigration of souls. And when you fulfill yourself to Rabbi properly and appropriately, then you'll come back here and go into that room. So, the woman says in the dream, I had seen that this soul had come back and that soul was your daughter. This is a story that he tells publicly. And the soul then came to the body of Rabbi Shwati's sister, whatever her name was. And then she lived 17 years and she was known for her great diligence in doing the mitzvah of Kibbutz Avayim. 
and therefore what took place she fulfilled himself tremendously perfectly well and then when she fulfilled himself so perfectly well the time came for her to go now go to Ulam Haba go to the Ghana of Eden go to the world to come <coughs> go to the world to come because that's the ultimate joy that she wants to have so it worked out very well she then at the, at the age of 17 years old hi good to see you welcome back how was your, your summer away? Hectic. Hectic. You back now full time? Oh, good. Very nice. Good. Good, good, good. Good to see you. Hectic. Capital H. I know, Yeah, a lot was going on. <laughs> For me too. Well, I should be used to it now, but I don't get used to it. So in that situation, so at the, at the age of 17, everything was taking place, everything worked out extraordinarily well, and therefore the appropriate action took place. You get that when you're vice president of the, vice, vice president of the shul, you get that one? So what happens at a certain point is that then everything worked out perfectly well. In that scenario, Rabbi Shwetki's telling of the story, where Diamond, Rabbi Shwetki's telling of the story, everything worked out perfectly well. 17 years old, everything took place properly, then went to Ulam Haba, went to the world to come, and knocked on the door, went to that room, perfect. The mother said to Rabbi Shweki, this comforted me. This comforted me. Rabbi Shweki quotes his mother as having said in that context, this comforted me. Because it puts this tragedy into a perspective. It puts it into a framework. Now, interesting question would be, that one can raise over here, is this may, this may be very poor theology, but it's great psychology. This woman came off the street during the, that period of time, the morning period of time, and just told her the story. She had a dream. She had a dream. She had a dream and she told her mother, and the mother said, I feel comforted. And I understand that because if you believe the dream, then everything makes sense. Right? We all accept that point. Charlie, you're with me, right? It makes sense. If, it, if, if it's true, then okay, I got it. I'm sorry? Take a very big chance of letting somebody come in to bed. Nobody let you put in. Who? Somebody should have screened if it was. No, 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 no. Not could have made it worse. That's an interesting question. I, I don't know. Uh, and then how do you scream? No, scream. Who? How do you scream? What's the story? I had a dream. I want to talk to uh, Mrs. Schwaki. <laughs> okay. You wouldn't let it. Okay. But the ne- I know that. They didn't know that. There's 50 people, maybe 100 people there, walking in, walking out. I, I want to walk in and tell the story, whatever the story may be. Now, I'm not saying that that's negative. In this case, it was very positive. In this case, it was very positive that we have to appreciate. The interesting question over here would be not the theology, because you may or may not like the theology. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, maybe it's metaphysical. More significantly, what I would say is the morality involved. Let's say that she didn't really have a dream. And this is good psychology, meaning let's say she knew. Right, exactly. Let's say either this woman knew that this thing happened in this particular house. She says, you know, I'm going to make this woman feel good. I know she's inconsolable. Maybe, in fact, what happened to this woman... Maybe this was a woman who, God forbid, lost a child in that particular context. In which way, or we don't know. And she says, you know, this somebody told me. Some rabbi told me this way, so I'm going to tell her. 
exactly. So it may have been in that context. We don't know anything about this. But it might be good psychology move the person along. and bad theology to move the person along. She needed this push. She needed this push in order to get her out of that extreme depression. Now, it is true that somebody that suffers a great loss could fall into that profound depression. I know. I know people that you know, lost a parent and, and just wasn't, was immobilized, could not deal with it. I understand that. Because you, it's just how you deal with these kinds of issues. And this particular mother may have needed somebody to come along. So the, more, the interesting psychological question would be, whatever you think about the theology, is that let's say the woman did it on her own for whatever reason, and even more significantly, what about if Rabbi Shraki knew that that's what his mother needed? To put in a spiritual framework, call it, let's use that term, this event, to, to bring her mother out of that situation, and he told the woman to do that. Is that right or wrong? Tell this woman, look, this is a point story, a story, let's say, from Zorazgo. Go come in, tell you my mother you had a dream, and this will make her feel better. I need you to do this. Is he wrong for doing that? Is he wrong for doing that? I would say no. I would say no. Because over here, what's more important is not theology, but a psychology. You have to move that person along. You as a rabbi, you as a son, you as a brother, you as a person, have, you have an obligation. You want to make that person whole. How do you make that person whole? Story, I think, tells that's the way you make a person whole. By virtue of putting it into this framework of meaningfulness. Again, you may not have the theology. A, it may be true theology, we don't know. B, it might be false, maybe it's bad theology, that's not what really happens at all. But if that person emerges from that discussion, that telling of the story, as a whole human being, then we're, I'm positively disposed towards it. The rabbis have to do that. The rabbi's job is at this point, at a moment of shiv'ah, a moment of crisis, not to talk theology, to talk comfort, to talk psychology. Try to get that person moving again. And, uh, you know, you may not have the guts to do it. But Shrekhi, I'm not saying he did. May have had the guts to say, my mother needs this, A. Or maybe the woman had experienced and knew about it and she did it, B. Or C, maybe she really had the dream. We don't know. And she left. Nobody knows who she was. I don't know. All I know is that if it made Mrs. Shrekhi feel comfort and feel a little less pain of the depths of emotional turmoil that takes place in a situation like that, appropriate, right, I can deal with it. I can't criticize the commandment. I don't know if I would publicly speak about it. I don't know if I'm going to uh, tell the story from the pulpit. I wouldn't, he did. I wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't I do that? It's a little bit private, a little bit too odd. It's too of a skewed theology that I'd be concerned about. So I'm not sure if I would go to tell the story publicly. But privately, if it made my mother feel better, then of course I would do it. The son, okay, chance, he said, he said son, on. which he, son? He's after your name, though. I, I don't know. What does it say? C A N C E N? Hanson? Cancer? Yes. Oh, yes, sure. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. I know. Sorry. It's after his In which case is this? Which, I mean, many cases. There's many cases that way. We know many people in a situation like that. Which. It happens, yeah. Kiddush or Kaddish? He's saying Kaddish. He says to me, it's his own. What's he mean? So he's saying, if the son has that disease, yes. then what does the parent do? 
don't know. It's very difficult. I agree with you. It's, like it's run up. It's yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation. In those cases, it's very difficult. So what does a parent do? So you need some kind of explanation. You need some kind of perspective. You need something that's going to help you get through it. So let's go back to the Rambam. So the Rambam is telling us over here that when a crisis takes place, you have to react. You have to do something. The Rambam does not want you over here to remain immobilized from either of the two perspectives. Either because you say this is God's decree, I do nothing. And I do nothing, period. Nor does the Rambam want you in the situation over here. Good, have a good holiday. Are you coming over to quit again? Yes. You are? Yes. Good, thank you. He all this. 11 months. It's Kaddish for 11 months. What's he saying is all? Kaddish helps you get out of the depression that this crisis puts you in. You say Kaddish. We say Kaddish. Yes. I know when I say Kaddish, I'm saying it with people. I'm saying it in the Minyan. I'm seeing my, my crisis, my tragedy as part of a broader scope. So it was part of the same discussion. It, it helped relieve the depression. But it's the name of it. It's all. The pair says Kaddish. Well, that's what we do. Yes, that's her only... Can you give me a piece of paper so I can <laughs> read this? The 30 days. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's, that's true. It's a good point. That a parent says Kaddish for a child only for 30 days. Yes, it means, yes. Yes, 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 yes. That's a difficult situation. Yes. But if that parent chooses to say more, he can. The parent can say Kaddish more if he wants to say more. I don't know. He's, he can. I don't know. And, and may... The halakha in that situation just wants to distinguish between a, that we say Kaddish only for a parent for an entire 11 months, 12 years, right. etc. And we want to distinguish between that bond between parent and child and between the parent and child. So we, 30 days in a year. But if the parent chooses to do so, he does so. Harry S. is saying Kaddish now for his son, Ali. I know He's yes. still saying it. It's, it's eight saying. months, seven, eight months. That's what I'm saying. And he needs to say it. It's appropriate to say it. It's, it's, it's good to say it. It helps to say it more than simply the 30 days. 30 days is a legal designation that you're only obligated for this point. But if you choose right. to do more, then one would do more. And that's appropriate. Let's go back to the Rambam. So the Rambam is saying also here that if you don't cry out and you, be, you are immobilized from either one of those two perspectives, and you say this is only simply the Rambam and Alam, it's only an instant to place, oh, you kick up your bike, it happens. Ah, sorry to hear that, but it happens. The Rambam and Alam. And Alam said, Alam, So it is, it happens. What are you going to do about it? is Akhzarigu. Cruelty. Because a person needs that spiritual framework that puts this in a certain little area that could make you immersion. If you think it's all random and life is meaningless, then what's the point? And you really feel devastated. Now, I could raise the question and say, would you prefer to have an ordered world, psychologically, where whatever tragedies take place, whether it's a bomb in Israel and something else like that happens, right. and the person dies and say, it was random, it just happened? Or I could put it in a framework that makes it more comprehensible to me. What would you prefer? Viewing it as random or viewing it as comprehensible, meaningful? The, the need of a person at that point would be to make it into a meaningful event. I need it. I need it. You need it. We all need it. I agree with you. I agree with you. Or both. Or both. Right. Okay, good. You can't put You say it has meaning, but you can't figure out the meaning in your own. To me, that's worse than I hear that. I accept that. It needs... One needs to know the tricks of the trade, profoundly so, to be able to put it into a framework. You're right. And if you don't have the framework to say something that's silly, nonsensical... No, no, no. No, no, no. Your, your good word of the was none of us really knows. But the question is, what does that person need at that moment? Does he need what really is the case? Or what's going to psychologically underline, make sense to the extent where he could feel comforted 
by that event that took place in his life. We, the Rambam is the issue of not to have the person immobilized, doing nothing. It happened. That, and that, when that social hall floor collapsed, 25 people were killed, whatever the case was, for a parent's family, my kid went to a wedding. I mean, I, I can't even imagine the depths of, 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 of anguish of a parent. You go to a wedding, no less. You're dancing, making a happy. Yeah, like you right. said, you don't want to tell a father, because maybe you didn't show me a maybe you didn't do... Uh, right, so saying... So I will say that, no, number one. Throw guilt and, right, so I will say that. And you don't know what you're talking about anyway. Exactly. But neither will I say on the other extreme, eh, just happened. Sorry, just happened. Random act, random act. It's cruelty act. to say that to the parents, but it's cruelty to say that privately without... But it's a random event? Belief. It might be a random event. It's not random. It's random for the people who were there. There's a cause why that floor fell. Oh. Bad engineering, overloading. That's not what we're talking about. That's, that's truly a commitment. I know. That's truly a commitment. I'm a theology. I'm, I'm a theologian. <laughs> Something about the theological uh, pillars that hold the... the uh, that hold, hold an investigation. Divine. That we'll do anyway. We agree. Of course we'll do that. But, but the issue... To try to assign to... Theological the perspective. Why he did that? No, why no, that to me? Why that to you? you? Agreed, agreed, agreed. So my issue over here would be less application, and yet simply just maybe in my particular context, I might say something like, "There is a reason that we don't know about." I might want to say that. And what's and, good? And we should all strive to do that. Exactly. So that okay. Cover oh, that's definitely what I would say. That's what the Rambam says next. That very, very fuzzy. It is very fuzzy. Depending upon to whom I'm speaking. I'm trying to sit over here. The Excuse me. Oh, yes, Oh, yes. I'm first. <laughs> He's the, the guard of the door. He's the person at the okay. first line, right. So, I agree with what you're saying. I agree with you on a slippery slope and it's a very thin ice and it's very difficult to do it right. In the Mishroka's case, it worked out right from what we're told. It was fine, no problem, no issue. It made her feel good. I'm... Children of you that do not confuse the theology and the psychology. Keep them both separate. I don't want, want to think that what's good psychology is, could be bad theology. We agree. On the one hand. On the other hand, it might be good theology and good psychology, or good theology and bad psychology. So you want to try to get it. Charlie's example before, we say this happened because they had mixed dancing at the wedding. That's bad, A, bad theology, which is worse psychology, because it could have been prevented. So you have to know your customer, you have to know your company, you have to know what you're saying, you have to make it work on both levels, or at least on the psychological level, make it work well. Now I'm really talking about theology, and the Ramam's point over here would be that one should not say that it's a random event, that would be cruelty. The Goremet, and it causes Lahem, lose that back, lose weight, he's telling you, like me. I agree, I have the same problem. The Goremet, lose that back, Masayam Araim, and it's, causes you to continue in the same bad deeds you were doing. So the Rambam, so the Rambam over here is, is telling us, could you do anything about changing the behavioral practices? If you say it's a random event, then everybody just shrugs it off, it just simply happens, and people will then continue to do what they're doing that's wrong. Try so before that, no, let's try to do something. So on a psychological level, whether it's good or bad theology, psychological level, the Rambam wants you to respond in a constructive behavioral fashion. Change your ways. Do something different. Again, whether it's good theology or not is one issue. Whether it's good psychology or not is a very different issue. It may simply be good psychology. That a person who went through this crisis, this tragedy, do something. Pray more. 
Was that theologically sound or not is irrelevant at this point. It's cruel to say it's random, don't do anything differently. No, do something differently. If I say that it's random and you do nothing differently, that's cruelty. And you will simply continue to do what you were doing. Here is a point over here, and then the Rambam's point, theologically, and again, the Rambam is going from theology to psychology, perhaps, I am stretching it. Maybe it's appropriate, it's not appropriate. We read the Rambam as a very subtle writer, and a very careful writer. So maybe we have the right to go from, from theology to psychology or not, I'm not sure. But we use the word achsariyut is a psychological term, it's not a theological term. Right? So here, if it is a dual level of understanding, theological and psychological, we have to read this properly, what the Ram is saying, then you're going to cause other crises to come about. Now, that would be a theological statement. That if you, the Ram's view of this is that the theological backdrop against which this is happening is that indeed, if you do transgress, you're going to pay a price for that. That's the Ram's theological backdrop. Here. So even if he does slip into the psychology at certain points, he does seem to have, at least in this source, in this context, one might want to go to other sources in the Rambam to see whether this is consistent or not. Because the Rambam is a very careful, subtle writer. So one would want to see the broadest perspective of the Rambam. Not to be one context, but the entire Mishneh Torah context, as well as the Mishneh context. You want to go over the Rambam's writings. Especially in something like this. This is a very, very difficult and a very intense three paragraphs very yes very much so very much so so one would want to see this in a broader context but at least in this context right over here the Rambam is saying that from the Pesachim the Rambam theologically sees this that if in fact a crisis came to the Sibu we spoke about the community the Kahal everybody together that God in fact will use crises as a means of you doing you changing your ways now Interestingly enough, of course, that almost one of the first messages of the Bible itself is Adam and Chava. They transgressed. Was there a consequence to their transgression? Absolutely, you're out of this Gan Eden and you're on your own right now. And of course, we want to teach our children on an ongoing basis that there are consequences to your actions. There is responsibility when you do something. That's what Gan Eden is all about. You transgress, you pay a price for it. The Mabu, or Kain and Hevel, you kill somebody. You can't just simply murder somebody and walk away from them and say, oh, well, I did it, it's okay. There's no consequences to my actions. No, to the contrary. You kill somebody, there are consequences to your actions. If your kid, what would you do if your child had, was speeding? God forbid to anybody. If your child is speeding on Dwight Drive or on some other thing, and God forbid he hits somebody and does something. What do you tell your kid? Business as usual, it happens. Imagine a parent that says that. Imagine a parent that says to his child that you were driving very fast. This happened in Brooklyn. We spoke about this, I think, once before. You were driving in Brooklyn Ocean Parkway, you're driving, you took your father's portion, you're driving, and you're really zooming along, and you killed three people. Right. Now imagine the parents saying, God's will, it's okay. Right. My God, try myself. If the guy said that, what would you do? What would you do? Look how foolish that is. What do you want to tell your kid? You want to tell your kid you can't drive for a year, maybe five years. Maybe you should drive ever again. Three lives, what's happened to a three kid? Now, on the, that's on one hand. So, on the one hand, if, some, that, if, the, if the parent told the child that independence is irresponsible, right. obviously we agree with that statement. Right. On the other hand, on the other side of that coin, the other response, what happens if the kid is so devastated, so destroyed, so distraught, that he goes into a deep depression? Goodbye. Not goodbye, one second. We're still, one second, we're still talking about a human being over here. 
So the parent, the rabbi, the counselor has an obligation at that point of trying to bring that kid along. Yes, he's responsible for his action. But if I end up concluding that your responsibility and your guilt is so overwhelming that you remain for the next 55 years of your life in a deep depression, then I've failed you as a human being. Your humanity is as much concerned to me as the people that were killed. So you have to bear responsibility for that on the one hand. On the other hand, I have to mobilize you to be able to function as a human being. You're a human being. I must get you back to square one to get you to function. So it's a very careful, almost tricky, balancing act between the person having responsibility for his actions and not taking that lightly. On the other hand, not heavy on that person to such a great degree who says, I killed three people. What am I going to do? I can never bring these people back. Right. It's the end of my life, the person says. Yeah. That person may feel that way. Yeah. So what does one do? Then the job of the rabbi, the job of the parents is to nurture that child along. I don't know. And maybe what you do is make the kids sit, maybe the person should, should sit shiver for the that he killed. I mean, not halakhically, obviously not, because there's no halakha obligation. But do something. Do something because you took three lives. Do, uh, you know, a charity act a week for each of those three lives you took. Something. Do something. I'll tell you to do something. So the Raman's theological slash psychological perspective over here is that Akadosh Baruch Hu will in fact bring a crisis to a community, Kedisha Tashuvu. It's not business as usual. When a crisis takes place in the community, Sibud level. Last line. Last line. When the Rambam, when the Rambam here presents to us this Pasuk from Baitra, he says that God does deliver messages to us that when a tzara, a crisis comes to a community, then it's for a reason. The crisis is about to happen, the impending doom, Tashuvu, do something about it. Scream out, cry, pray to God, blast the shofarot, blast the trumpets. If you conclude, business as usual, no big deal, so the kid was killed on the white drive, God forbid, on Ocean Parkway, don't take responsibility for what you're doing, and that will only bring in its wake further tragedy. Obviously further tragedy. You just keep that the message, that's okay if I kill somebody, that's okay. So goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye, I'm going here though, I'm settled. I don't want that to happen, I can't say that. You have to take responsibility for your actions. So that child has to take responsibility. We as a community take responsibility. So don't say... What? I didn't get it. Write it down. Oh no, I have a bad possession. Yeah, so then what? So you should go and pray, you should go and pray and, and change your ways. That kid who was speeding, I want to change his ways. I don't want to... That's the thing. So the Ram saying you have to change your ways. Either theologically or even from the point of view of the, the person. The kid's driving too fast and like that and let him change his ways. Otherwise, it's another tragedy. It's another tragedy. Yeah. So you have to take responsibility and you have to make sure that what, that what you are doing, that what you are doing is not going to simply happen again. So the Rambam over here is talking about Teshuvah. Return from your evil ways. Return from what you went 80 miles an hour on, on that street. You've got to pay a price for that. So on one hand, the Rambam is trying to have us... I'm finished. I don't want to stop you. I don't think, but I'm cutting your salad if you continue on this over here, so I don't want to stop you at all. We're finished. Okay, can we just say, can I have one more minute? 30 seconds? No? 30 seconds? No? 30 seconds? Your timing is good. Your timing is fine. So the Rambam in this very first chapter of Kotani talks about crisis, talks about tragedy on the Sibur level, on the collective level, not individually. Hardy was talking about individual issues. 
we're talking about this on the collective level and here the Ramam tells us that if a, tri- a crisis or a tragedy is about to happen or has happened respond to it do something about it do not remain immobilized from it because if you do remain immobilized and you do nothing you simply think it's a, a uh, random event, uh, incident then the Ram is going to say that you are flirting with further disaster and that more crisis will be because God in fact does bring Tara in order that we shall in fact do Teshuvah. What we want to see next week will be Rabbi Salavechik's... Yeah, perhaps yes. Yeah, I think that's perhaps a proper response to that. That's a crisis, we should do it. My pleasure, my pleasure. I don't know. We're going to finish this next week with the Rabbi Come next week. Okay. Yeah, I want to look through it. Yeah.